Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Some of you may have noticed a video on Facebook that had an example of how to quote unquote not shame the addict that more or less put the addict in the position of victim where he felt put upon by clergy or friends or family or his girlfriend or his spouse for shaming him and not reacting in a way that met his needs. We know that's ridiculous. This is a perpetrator of crimes. Someone who has lied, been abusive, someone who has been unfaithful. If he's really in recovery, the person who he would be concerned about are his victims, not himself and how they're gonna react to him. An addict in recovery can face the consequences of his actions, meaning he expects people to be angry and upset. He's ready to have his clergy say, hey, this is wrong. What you've done is wrong. That would be an expectation of someone who's in recovery to face the honest consequences of his actions. When an addict is in victim mode, they don't want to face the consequences of their actions. They don't want to hear other people's anger or anything that would make them feel bad about themselves. But it's too late for that. They feel shame for good reason. They feel shame because they have been lying, they have been committing adultery, and they have been abusive. I have Gary Wilson on the podcast today to talk about the facts that shame does not cause addiction, that you can tell the truth, that you do not have to enable a perpetrator by treating him like a victim. He is not a victim. In fact, the victims are the victims. If you are a victim of lies, infidelity, or abuse, you need to worry about your own safety, not whether or not you're hurting your abuser's feelings. You need to get to safety and you need to stay safe until he shows signs of change, meaning he's honest, humble, accountable, and willing to submit to the consequences of his actions. Gary and I are also going to talk about how addicts use the theory that they have a quote unquote attachment disorder and they are expecting you to attach with them so that they don't look at pornography. That is not true. You are unable to attach to someone who is actively using pornography. And so if they're trying to blame you for not attaching or saying, I didn't feel attached and so I used porn, that is a way to manipulate and abuse you and to avoid accountability. This podcast with Gary is super important, and I hope everyone will listen to every single word of it. We had some sound problems, so say a little prayer that you won't notice. (laughs) I think once you start listening to it, you'll get used to the sound problems, and it won't bother you as much, but please just say a little prayer and say, even though Gary's microphone wasn't working very well and the connection was bad, bless that I can hear this and process what it's saying so that it can help me in my recovery. Gary is the author of Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography, and the Emerging Science of Addiction, and the presenter of the popular TEDx talk, The Great Porn Experiment, which has been viewed more than 10 million times and translated into 18 languages. He hosts the website, Your Brain on Porn, which was created for those seeking to understand and reverse compulsive porn use. That website is yourbrainonporn.com. He taught anatomy and physiology for years and has long been interested in the neurochemistry of addiction, mating, and bonding. 
In 2015, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health presented Wilson with its Media Award for Outstanding Media Contributions and Public Education on Pornography Addiction. In 2016, Wilson co-authored an academic paper with seven U.S. Navy doctors entitled Is Internet Pornography Causing Sexual Dysfunctions? A Review with Critical Reports. And another journal article entitled Eliminate Chronic Internet Pornography Use to Reveal Its Effects. Welcome, Gary. Hey, it's great to be here. Okay, Gary, why is this shame causes addiction theory so popular right now? Addiction and shame are often intertwined, and that's really a separate issue. So there might be shame associated with porn use, or there may be shame associated with just addiction. I can't stop drinking alcohol, it's ruining my life, and I'm in a shame and then binge cycle because I can't stop. I think when we use the word shame, we need to be very specific about what we're talking about. Is it true? Does shame cause pornography addiction or any addiction? No, shame doesn't cause addiction. Let's be real clear about this. Addiction's been studied for now 60 years, and there are thousands and thousands of neurological studies. It started with animals where they can induce addiction. Animals do not have shame. And they then cut the brains open. They look at the brains. They see the brain changes. And so thousands and thousands of rats, mice, even uh, monkeys. And then recently starting to look at food addiction in animals. Then in the last 20 years, we've looked at the brain changes in humans that occur with both drug addiction and behavioral addiction, such as porn addiction, gambling addiction, food addiction, and internet addiction. These brain changes are pretty consistent. And the brain changes then are mirrored in the behavior. So the behaviors would be something like the compulsion to use, which has a lot of cravings, the inability to control use, you're just out of control and you're binging, continue use despite severe negative consequences. These are the behaviors that we associate with an addiction And then we have the brain changes that occur that are mirrored in those people and animals. So no, shame does not cause addiction-related brain changes. Let's just get that out of the way. How is shame different than addiction? Well, it's just an emotion. You can have depression. You can have anxiety. You can feel bad. It's very common for someone who has an addiction to have shame. But the shame is really about the inability to control use despite negative consequences. In other words, they're hurting themselves, they're hurting those around them, they can't control use, so they have shame because they can't control themselves. That's the shame that's associated with addiction, and that is separate and should be kept separate. I monitor these very large forums where we have primarily young men who are quitting porn, and one of them is called NoFap, and it has over 300,000 members, and they did a survey, and they found that 62% of their members who are trying to quit porn are agnostic or atheist. So, no, porn addiction isn't about shame. Why this is so important to me is because I remember a specific situation where my ex, his behaviors were escalating out of control. He was becoming more abusive. And his dad came over and they prayed together in our basement. And then his dad left. And then he came up about an hour later. 
I said, how did it go with your dad? And he was like, fine. And then after that prayer, I looked at porn for an hour and masturbated. And I sat down on our bed and I said, whoa, that's bad. Okay. That's all I said. Three words. Whoa, that's bad. Because I realized, holy cow, if he has this prayer with his dad and then immediately (laughs) looks at porn for an hour and masturbates, he's way far gone. After I said those three words, he yelled, stop shaming me. He used it to silence me. Basically, you can't say anything to me. You can't be angry about my porn use. You need to, quote unquote, support my recovery. If you don't support my recovery, then you're shaming me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like this shame thing has been taken to this whole different level than it was ever intended by addicts to manipulate people. And it's really ticking me off. Let's talk about the myth that religious people are more likely to be porn addicts than non-religious people. First of all, tell me why that myth is floating around and why that's not accurate. Well, there's a couple of reasons that it's floating around. Often what's cited or put up on the internet is this study that found that Utah was number one in porn use. And that was published about 2008. And for the last 10 years, it's been put up. uh, And people say, well, look, religious people use more porn or they're more addicted. Well, no, they're not. Every single study, probably 25 studies that have asked groups of people who you know whether they're religious or not, they have found that religious people use porn at far lower rates than secular people. So that means that being religious is protective against porn use and thus protective against porn addiction. It's called Red Lights, Who Buys Online Adult Entertainment. It wasn't about porn use across all the porn tube sites. It was looking at state-by-state subscriptions to one porn site out of thousands of porn sites. My belief is this researcher looked and looked until he found a particular website whose subscriptions were higher in Utah than any other place. So it was a biased study. All studies, I'm saying this, all studies that have looked at individuals who check off the box, I'm religious, I'm not religious, all of them find less porn use among the religious. And what's interesting is a study came out a couple months ago, and it decided to look at some of these three or four studies that look at states. And they say, well, uh, red states have a higher rate of Google searches for porn or sex or penises or whatever. So they looked at this, And they actually thought, because the suggestion in all these studies is that religious people are really lying about their porn use on all these many studies. They looked at it, they found out that no, they weren't lying. In fact, religious people were more likely to tell the truth. So these studies that just looked at how much Google searches there are for sex or penises in Utah really do not show good data. They're not representative and they should be tossed away. The study said we should stop doing these type of studies. So the bottom line is religious people use porn at a far lower rate, which means their addiction is at a far lower rate. Now, I would like to point out that Gary is not religious. Not agnostic, yeah. As were my parents and as were my grandparents. Right. So this is not a religious person telling us these studies. This is an agnostic. 
I just want to point that out to my listeners so that they know where you're coming from, which is what I really appreciate about you. Why do you think at least religious people in Utah have glommed on to this shame thing as the cause? And so everybody's walking on eggshells to try not to shame other people, which frankly keeps people from stating the truth being bold about what their needs are, and also holding people accountable. Right now, there is a huge lack of accountability going on because people don't want to shame other people. Yeah, well, not only Utah, but a lot of the popular media has glommed onto it. So that means that Utah has. And we think of Utah, we think, of course, LDS. I have lots of friends who are LDS, and they tell me there is shame associated with porn use. But what happened is Joshua Grubbs, a former uh, very religious person, started to do studies. And in these studies, he had a questionnaire. It was a nine-question questionnaire, and it was called the Compulsive Pornography Use Index. And what he found using all nine of his questions is that religious people scored higher on this. So he named his nine questions perceived addiction, and then the media took it and said, wow, religious people believe they're addicted to porn when they're not. But then when you look closely at the studies, you find that three of the questions were about shame and guilt. Addiction questionnaires for gambling, alcohol, meth, cocaine, do not have questions about feeling guilt or shame after using drugs or using nicotine. What it did is when they looked at it closely, and several studies have since looked at it, they found that this particular questionnaire, because of its being one-third guilt and shame, caused religious people to score higher. So they said, oh, religious people are more addicted. But then when you remove those three questions that just looked at his other six questions, you found that religious people really didn't score higher. He created a questionnaire that was bogus. And here's the interesting thing is just a couple months ago, because I've critiqued his work quite a bit and we've had conversations, he decided to try to disprove what I was saying. So he said, okay, I'm going to toss out my questionnaire. You say it's too much guilt and shame. I'm just going to go ask a bunch of people. And he did three separate studies. Do you believe you're addicted to porn? That's what he asked, just straight up. None of these guilt and shame questions. And guess what he found out? There was no difference between religious people and non-religious people in believing they're addicted to porn. And guess what he found out was the best predictor of believing you're addicted? How much porn you use. The more porn you use, the more you thought you were addicted. Right. So he basically debunked all of his own studies, and he debunked all the other studies that use the same questionnaire. So all the shame being the cause of porn addiction arises from one place. Joshua Grubb's nine-question questionnaire called the CPI-9, and then last year he debunked his own questionnaire. Does he admit that now? Does he say now, oops? No, he doesn't say oops directly. He's still using his questionnaire. And I actually was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and he admitted that there was problems. He said, well, a lot of people think there's problems with this questionnaire, but we use it anyhow. So he keeps using it. They take these steps that aren't connected and connect them. And then they found, wow. When you remove those three questions from the Grubbs questionnaire that are just about shame and guilt, 
there's really no connection to religiousness. So again, they keep finding, looking at this questionnaire, that you need to get rid of these three questions that have nothing to do with addiction. Uh, they only have something to do with guilt and shame. And all the headlines really fall apart. Right. So it's a big lie out there. And you know, you've seen my presentation. It's just a big lie, and it continues. How can we help wives regain their voice after being silenced by the manipulation of a porn user who is saying, you can't do this or you can't do that because if you do, it's shame. That's blaming someone else for your own behavior. And that's just ridiculous. An alcoholic, you know, the same thing. A cigarette smoker, meth user, gambler. The shame is internal. It's an internalized thing of the addict. They have shame because they can't control use. So when you feel bad about yourself, you then lash out at those who are closest to you. The porn addict is going to feel shame whether the spouse or partner points out that they're using when they said they wouldn't, or when that person privately, without being discovered, uses without you know, the partner knowing. Shame's going to occur in both situations. It's just, it's just blaming someone else for your behavior. What I want my listeners to know is that you can state your needs. You can tell them how you feel. You can be honest. If they accuse you of shaming them, you can be like, uh, no, I am telling the truth. I am religious, so I would say, no, I'm standing for truth and righteousness in stating the truth and setting boundaries. Non-religious people might say something like, I have specific needs to feel safe in my own home, and I do not feel safe. Stating my needs has nothing to do with me shaming you. Women are so terrified to state their needs right now, and I don't know how else to say it other than flat out say there is nothing you can say to him that will shame him. He is responsible for his own shame. And so you can say what you need to say. It's strange if we step back a little bit and look at the big picture. I think also I've heard that in the past in, quote, sex addiction recovery models that they have suggested to the woman that she not shame the partner, that she take responsibility for her behavior. I completely disagree with that. Why is it that with, quote, sex addiction or porn addiction, that we're so caught up in, oh, we cannot shame the partner, but with gambling addiction, we wouldn't have that same response? I don't see that. Or with alcoholism. You don't see a lot of the, oh, it's also the partner's problem. Maybe you do. Maybe there's this codependence thing. But I don't like the codependence model. No. I don't like it at all. Every individual must take responsibility for their actions. And that's my model. And that's the only model that works as far as I can see, having monitored these forums where guys are trying to quit for the last 12 years. They take responsibility for their actions. Yeah, you don't hear people saying, my brother does crack cocaine. I didn't want to shame him. And so I asked him how he was doing. You know, I mean, usually people are like, crack cocaine is wrong. I'm going to state it out loud. It's not a good thing. It's bad if you do it. There's not this fear of like, oh, I need to walk on eggshells. Also, in my religion, 
with drugs or with other things, there is accountability. But with porn, there's this, oh, we don't want to push him away from the church. We want to make sure we keep him in the church. And so there's no accountability. And I think, well, wait a minute. They need to be held accountable for pornography. They need to be held accountable regardless of what it is, not because this one particular sin, pornography, oh, feel really bad for him. You know, one thing I'd like to point out when we're talking about shame A lot of men, both religious and non-religious, it doesn't really matter, who come to my site and they read them the neuroscience related to addiction in general and then porn addiction specifically because there are differences, they then feel less guilt and shame because the truth is internet porn, just like junk food, is sort of set up to trap people. So internet porn is set up to trap largely males, so females do get trapped. It's endless sexual novelty, all these women. For females and males, modern junk food traps us. So 35% of adult Americans are obese, 75% overweight, and yet none of them want to be. We really have now these super normal versions of what we call natural rewards in our face. And my site describes how it can trap men into it, and then the addiction brain changes, and how it's tough when these brain changes have occurred, like your frontal cortex has changed, and it's hard for you to inhibit behaviors, or your stress system has completely been altered, and every time you have a little bit of stress, you have severe cravings to use. What they also need to know is you need to stop using these things will not go away. You need to have long periods of not using in order for the brain changes to reverse themselves. So I think, in summary, that if you learn about addiction in general, porn addiction, and how supernormal versions of natural rewards like junk food or porn can grab us, then maybe you can step back and say, okay, well, This is what's normal. It happened to me. It's not good. I don't want it to happen, but I can see why it did. And so that's my approach. And now, of course, uh, whether you're LDS or an atheist, these young men are starting at age 12 or younger. So by the time they decide to get married, they've been using porn for 10 straight years. So you may end up in a, a relationship where... They've trained their brain through adolescence to just use porn. And I really admire the addicts who view it that way. Right. It's not surprising to me that this happened. Now I need to move forward and become a healthy person. Right. They're some of my favorite people. I really, really enjoy being around addicts in recovery. Mm -hmm. They're humble. They're honest. They're easy to get along with. Very peaceful people. The addicts who are not in recovery, however, and are faking recovery or trying to blame other people or avoid accountability, that is like really not fun. And that's the population that generally speaking, my audience is dealing with every day, all day long. And so we have to set boundaries around that so that we can be safe emotionally and also physically from STDs or domestic violence. I'm so glad that you have your site and that men are going there to get the help that they need. And I wish that everyone would. The uh, World Health Organization, they have a diagnostic manual 
which is over and above the U.S. diagnostic manual called the DSM that categorizes diseases, whether it's depression or schizophrenia. So you often hear that, oh, a porn addiction and sex addiction have been rejected by the DSM, so it's not a real condition. Well, that wasn't true, but here is what's true, is in 2018, the ICD-11, which covers all countries in the world, the United States uses it also, they are going to have what's called compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which will be an umbrella diagnosis for porn addiction, sex addiction, cyber sex addiction. So it is now being recognized by the world, and that's because there's been so many studies so again, the argument by the addict who's using, who says, oh, you're causing shame in me. Sorry, shame doesn't cause addiction. That's internalized. Oh, this isn't really addiction. I should just do it for the fun of it. Well, yeah, it is an addiction. There are 40 neurological studies that show the same brain changes that occur in porn addicts that also occur in other types of addicts. And yeah, the ICD-11 is about to recognize this because they're going to have a diagnosis for it. So you really don't have any excuse here, buddy. That's awesome. What particular brain changes make addicts more likely to blame their partner? (laughs) Blame their partner. I don't think you can put that down to a brain change. I think it's just I feel bad about myself because I can't control use, so I'm going to project it outwards. I mean, this is just the human nature. We project our internalized state outward to the world. So the internalized state for an addict is I feel really crummy because, number one, I'm using. That makes me feel crummy. Number two, I've promised people, and I'm breaking the promise. Number three, I am causing damage to myself, to my family, to my job. So I am really having a negative effect. Since I don't want to feel bad about myself, I'm going to blame you. And you're the closest person to me. You don't think it has anything to do with like their frontal lobe being damaged? Are there any issues with not being able to connect the dots? I noticed when my ex was using, he got not very smart. He was totally, completely illogical. (laughs) That's true. You're exactly right. 15 studies on porn users and sex addicts have found this. The prefrontal cortex, that's the higher part of our brain, the one that controls impulses, the one that puts the brakes on you yelling at your spouse or flipping someone off because you're mad and plans ahead and sees the consequences of actions, it does become weakened. I won't use the term damage, but it does become weakened. Yeah, there's been about uh, five or six studies that show less cognitive functioning or poorer cognitive functioning in porn addicts and sex addicts. In essence, they do become dumber and they have a lot harder time controlling their impulses. So yes, you're right. And it's great you point this out that that would lead to someone wanting to scream at the partner. And what's interesting is thousands and thousands of self-reports from young men who quit. And one of the most common benefits they see is that they can think clearer, their brain fog is gone, their grades go up. And also what's interesting and related to this is they can feel much more emotion so they can have much more empathy. So if you're lacking empathy, that too would cause you to lash out at someone close to you. You're lacking empathy, you're lacking the ability to control your impulses, and your logic isn't that sound. 
the stress system is all messed up so that you're much more hyper-reactive to any stressor and, again, lashing out. Yeah. It seems like it wouldn't be that difficult for someone who can't connect the dots to blame someone else, even if it's super illogical because they're just not capable of being logical with that type of brain. Often now, neuroscientists think of addiction as almost a stress disorder because it's so messed up that every time you have a little bit of stress, you have cravings and you have a hard time coping with stress. And of course, what's more stressful than your spouse saying, hey, buddy, you should quit. And so that's a stressor. And then they lash out, you know, they go into fight or flight mode, like attack or be attacked or run. So they either run away or they attack someone's in front of them because their stress system's messed up. Do you think it's more accurate to say that porn addiction is a stress disorder than an attachment disorder then? Because that actually seems way more logical to me. I've never thought of that before. I don't like to label it an attachment disorder. In fact, I don't like to label any of the addictions an attachment disorder. And there's a myth out there. Johan Hari put out a big TED Talk that said, oh, addiction is an attachment disorder. Again, let's step back from that. So many porn addicts and porn users have wives and spouses and sons and daughters and family and friends, yet they continue to use then we look at something that is obviously an addiction, smoking. They don't study smokers are more sociable. So they don't have any attachment disorders, but yet they can't quit despite severe negative consequences. So I don't even like the idea of it being an attachment disorder. I think that's too simplistic. I agree. I hate it. That's why I love you so much. I'm like, thank you, because I'm surrounded by this shame and attachment disorder and all these things. And it just makes the wives feel terrible. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a stress disorder with several other brain changes, more and more studies coming out. Because when does an addict use when they have any type of stress? And interesting enough, too, when they stop using, they have withdrawal symptoms. Now, sometimes it's really bad withdrawal symptoms. Some guys will report even aches and pains, but it's anxiety, restlessness, depression, brain fog. And so in order to get over that, they'll go back and use. So both the lashing out, the inability to adapt to stress, cravings when you have stress and withdrawal symptoms, these are all coming from one thing, a malfunctioning stress system. And that was caused by chronic overuse because it occurs with drug addictions also. Wow. Wow. You make the most sense to me as a victim of someone who perpetually used pornography, lied to me and abused me. It just makes so much more sense. I did not shame him. I can't shame him. I was not capable of doing that. It helps me really view it for exactly what it is. And I so appreciate that. Even though porn isn't methamphetamine or cocaine, they've done experiments on animals and there's certain animals that fall in love with their partner and they're called voles. So they actually learn the biological, neurological mechanisms of falling in love in people by studying voles. And what they found is if you give uh, voles methamphetamine, something that really raises dopamine or cocaine, something that raises dopamine, well, porn raises dopamine as high as can be done naturally. And if you become addicted, it blocks the falling in love mechanisms. The attachment disorder 
is a result of the addiction in many cases, at least it is shown in animals. Again, we got to separate the result of chronic porn use rather than going back and saying, oh, they originally had an attachment disorder and then they became addicted. No, they became addicted, which interferes with attachment. Right. They're incapable of attachment because they use porn. Yes, just like to think of, again, I'll use an extreme example, a mother who's addicted to cocaine, she doesn't even take care of her baby. You can have more mild examples. Look, a porn addict is really willing to ruin their marriage in order to continue to use porn. So it obviously is affecting their bonding with both their children and with their spouse. Exactly. So women... You don't need to worry. You don't need to try, quote unquote, attaching to an unsafe person. No. You can set boundaries. You can state your needs. <laughs> if we think about other addictions, the model, of course, being alcoholism, they don't call that an attachment disorder. They suggest that the alcoholic stop using. In fact, when someone who's not in a relationship goes into AA, they say, don't get into a relationship for a whole year. You need to focus in on your sobriety. I could see where have greater attachment and love between us two spouses would be beneficial, but that I don't see is as the cause of porn addiction. I monitor a lot of forums. Hundreds of thousands of men who are in relationships, they are quitting. And what they report after 30, 60, 90 days is they see their wife differently. They see their partner differently. They are more in love. They can't believe they acted the way they did. They just want to shower her with love and sex. Finally, when they're able to get it up, it's so much more exciting. And they're thrilled. And the wives are more thrilled and they feel connected. So did that person have an attachment disorder or was it because of porn interfering with attachment? I think maybe they're putting the cart before the horse. Yes, the porn addict may be having trouble attaching, but is that because of their chronic years of porn use and their continual use of porn use? I would say yes, because I've observed the changes in how the men view the women and experience the emotions, once again, of love and attachment after they quit. That needs to be looked at and addressed and acknowledged. Absolutely. And they're not quitting is the problem. It's like, oh, I had a relapse. I had a relapse every day for seven days. <laughs> right? And I did it because I didn't feel attached to you. Don't shame me. But they need to be worthy to attach to. If they have an attachment disorder, and let's say they had actual childhood trauma and they were an orphan or whatever, then that would be great to address in therapy if that was helpful, but what does that have to do with porn? You know, what happened when they got married? Weren't they attached? Weren't they in love? What changed? Well, what changed probably was chronic porn use. So I think blaming someone else, the spouse, for the addict's chronic use and their lack of attachment may be misguided. Here's a really, really dangerous question. It's super dangerous. Okay. Do you think that these therapists that are coming up with this attachment stuff and this shame stuff and these people who are spreading this nonsense, do you just think they're addicts themselves and they're just trying to justify stuff and not feel bad? I'd probably say no, because 
attachment is what we all want to do as humans. So when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have a model called attachment disorder, then you're finding it everywhere, right? So I think you're taught certain things and then you see it. But all of us humans, because we're in the human condition, we have problems with relationships. We may have problems with attachment. You know, unless we're enlightened or Jesus or in love with everyone, we're going to have problems. But to focus in on that as the cause of porn addiction, I think is misguided. I think you should try all sorts of therapies and activities and whatever you can to have the porn addict and porn user stop for a long period of time. Then you may see a change in their ability to express emotions, to feel, for them to feel love coming back at them from their friends, their kids, and especially their spouse. So I think it might be putting the cart before the horse with the attachment disorder model. It's not working for women. They're trying to support their spouse who's quote unquote in recovery. Their spouse is lying straight to their face telling him, yes, I'm in recovery when he's not really. And he's not showing these recovery behaviors, these brain changes that you're talking about where they're able to love their spouse more, or they're able to connect better because they've stopped using porn. They're not happening, but the guy's claiming that he's in recovery. Leave me alone. I'm working on my recovery. You don't have any right to talk to me about my recovery. You work on your side of the street, that sort of a thing. Right. I did see in my ex a period of time where I thought, wow, he is changing. He seems smarter. He seems more connected. And I really appreciated that. But now I just think those were just short spurts and not a long-term change. And that's what we're trying to teach our listeners to look for. We have a checklist that's specifically for wives of porn users so that they know exactly what behaviors to look for to know if they're safe rather than just taking the addict's word for it, that they're going to their 12-step meeting or that they are in recovery while they're basically just manipulating their wife still and lying. Right. You know, there's something sort of nasty about addiction. And they've seen this both in food addiction and animals, drug addiction. It's called the abstinent effect. And this occurs with people who are religious. They're using porn and then they'll take a break because they're really white knuckling it and they'll take a week off, two weeks off. But what's interesting is when you stop an actual addiction, over the next two to three weeks, your brain changes and it sprouts more connections to make the cravings even more intense if you are exposed to something that causes cravings. So about three weeks out, the brain has changed, and if you are under stress or you get exposed to some sexy image, your cravings are much stronger than they were a couple days after you quit. And it's really a nasty thing. And so then the person usually relapses and they relapse in a binge form because the cravings are so out of control. So they might watch porn for five hours and then they feel like crap. And then again, they project it out on the world. So there's often this binge relapse cycle with two to three week gaps. And that actually causes more severe binging and relapse than just uh, quitting for a couple of days. Yeah. So in other words, they need to get further down the line. They need to get 60, 90 days, 120 days away from binging. And they need to be honest about where they are too. I think what's happening right now, at least in my community, is they tell their wife they're in recovery. Their clergy knows, the family knows, people are talking about it more. And so they know they have to be in recovery. So then they relapse and they lie. 
and they just keep lying. Without the truth, there's just no way for them to get better. They know they're supposed to be in recovery and they're not willing to be honest about their situation in so many cases. Well, that's just a normal addiction pattern. Yeah. It's it's not your fault, women. It's not because you stated your needs. It's not because you asked him to mash the potatoes. It's not because you asked him to cut the tomatoes. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is all him. Well, yes. And, you know, there's this common myth that a wife, if she just gave a guy enough sex, he would give up porn. But that is not what happens in practice. We see that over and over again everywhere that the guy is compulsively addicted to porn, which means he wants to watch porn, he wants to click from video to video, and no single female can match the novelty, the variety, the acts that are in porn. So the woman should never blame herself that she's not enough because no one could ever be a thousand different women in a five-hour porn binge. You can't compete with porn. No. But you can compete with love, and so I think that's why they turn to, well, maybe if we had attachment, that would be good. But if the person continues to use, it's interfering with the attachment of the addict. So again, it comes back to the responsibility of the addict to have a long abstinent period. And as you said, to be honest about the bitches so that the wife can recognize, oh, this is why you've all of a sudden gotten so grumpy. It doesn't matter to us why. Because if we try and figure out, oh, has he gotten so grumpy because he's stressed at work? Has he gotten so grumpy because he looked at porn? Is it because he went off his medication? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Us, the only thing that matters is when that abuse starts that we set boundaries. Yeah. Because if we try to figure out why and try to get him help, oh, you need to go to the therapist. You need to do that. We just get caught in the abuse cycle. The second that starts happening, it's the time to detach, take a step back, set the boundaries you need and observe. Just observe what they're going to do from a safe distance rather than jumping into basically the ring and being like, okay, go ahead, abuse me. Cause that's what happens. <laughs> the common knowledge, you can't fix an addict, whatever type of addict they are. It's not up to you. It's always up to the person. Exactly. Well, you are amazing. Thank you so much. I am so excited to get this out. Like, yay, it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit of a backstory. So my wife and I, of course, besides being non-religious, we didn't think much about porn. And we got into this observing, you know, year in and year out, guys who are trying to quit. And what was interesting about them, there was none of this discussion about attachment. There was none of this discussion about blaming the wife. None of them. Literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of posts and none of them are blaming the spouse. They're all like, man, I did this. Man, I did this. I've got to do X to quit. So it's a real different consciousness that we've observed uh, than what you're experiencing. And they quit and they recover and they're happy as hell because they took responsibility for their life. I went through years of thinking it was an attachment disorder and shame and, and I lost my voice in the process and was abused because of it. And it stinks. It serves the perpetrators. It's not a model that protects victims. Well, it's great that you're doing this. We've had discussions when I was out there, the tremendous need for this, because, man, it's really putting the partners into a bad position. It's really, really bad. It's causing PTSD, right? Yeah. And when you go for help to a therapist who doesn't know what they're doing and you go to help for clergy and you get further traumatized, uh -huh. it's so bad. Women are being slaughtered, slaughtered. And the clergy, clergy everywhere, they just don't know squat about addiction. They just don't. 
Yeah, that's painfully obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe it's good they don't know anything about addiction because they're not addicts, perhaps. But yeah, it, it's bad. <laughs> You're like the only person that makes sense to wives in my situation. Oh, good, good. I'm glad I make sense to someone. I'm so thankful for everything you do. So Gary's site is yourbrainonporn.com. His book, Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography and the Emerging Science of Addiction, his website and his book can really help give you the truth about what's happening so that you can release yourself from the shame you might feel from not being able to quote unquote help or attach or, you know, be supportive or whatever it is that's holding you back from being able to set the boundaries that you need to feel safe. Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. If this podcast is helpful to you, please consider being a monthly donor. Go to our website, scroll down to the bottom to make a donation. Also, you can go directly to the page, which is btr.org backslash donate. We have the option of donating $10 a month to support this free podcast and our website that is free to all women so that they can know the truth about their situation and find safety as quickly as possible. I mentioned the checklist earlier in this podcast. That address is btr.org backslash checklist. Or if you go to our website and drop down the education menu, you'll find it under nine steps to heal from betrayal trauma. We also really appreciate you rating this podcast, which helps increase our search engine rankings so that isolated women can find us as they're searching online for the truth about their situation. If you'd like to join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group to be able to talk with women online from all over the world about your situation to have support, please go to our website, click on daily support groups to see our support group schedule. And also check out the topics that are available for our individual sessions on our individual sessions page. If you scroll down, you can look at all of the possible topics. Those aren't the only topics. You can talk about whatever you would like, but many women don't know where to start. And so that might give you a good idea about where you are and what you might need and what topics you might be interested in to progress your recovery, to get to safety, and to find peace in your life. Until next week, stay safe out there.